People tell me all of the time that if they could just see Jesus, they would really believe. If they could just get a glimpse of him, then they would start living the life that they know they should be living, that they've been holding back from living, but they just haven't really seen him. Or if they could just get their eyes on him, then they would become this uber super Christian, a hero of the faith. And today what I want to show you is that that isn't true at all. In fact, there were many people, we're told in the New Testament, that saw the resurrected Jesus, but they didn't believe. Today, what we're going to see is that because Jesus left us, a thunderbolt of his presence came down upon the earth. And what that means is you can no longer use it as an excuse that you can't see him. You can't say, look, I'm not a fully devoted follower of Jesus because I haven't seen him. You can't say, I'm not growing now because I'm not, my eyes aren't on my king. We're in our series called The Gospel, and the word gospel means good news. News of something that you can see but you can't see. And this news is the greatest news that you have ever heard. In fact, if it doesn't sound like the greatest news you've ever heard, you are misunderstanding it. Or you haven't heard the whole of it, or I have failed you. And today, well, what we have been saying is that all throughout history, we keep messing up our understanding of the gospel. And one of the greatest ways that we keep messing it up, the church, historians, scholars, leaders of the church throughout history, heroes of the faith, keep messing it up. And here's how we keep doing it. We keep seeing it as a part and we cannot seeing it as the whole thing and if heroes of the faith are making it scholars are making this mistake you're likely making it too so I, this happened to me so I saw the gospel as a beautiful diamond it captured my attention it was the treasure that I have found the greatest treasure I had found and I looked through it and I saw the world differently it added color and it added life to everything and I saw myself differently I saw God differently I felt alive, I felt joy, and I felt at peace. And then it began to fade. I began to lose it. I began to, this closeness with God began to go away. And the more I sought him, the more it seemed like I couldn't find him. And my joy and my peace began to fade. And I couldn't figure out what was happening and what was wrong. And so I kept looking at this diamond and it didn't work. And I began having these nightmares that God wasn't real. And that's the only reoccurring nightmare that I've ever had in my life. Continually having this nightmare. But I kept looking at this diamond because I knew, everybody kept telling me, the diamond, just you got to see him through this diamond of the gospel. And then something happened. I found the whole diamond mine. And that's when I realized something. For me, for you, you have wounds in your life. And there is a special diamond of the gospel in this diamond mine that is particular for your wound. And when you find it, you say, this is everything. This is the gospel. This is the centerpiece of it. This is the greatest part of the gospel. This is the greatest part of Christianity. This is what has happened throughout church history. Some 
amazing mind finds this out and fights to show the entire church that this is the center of the gospel. But what you're going to find is you're going to meet somebody else who has a different wound than you. And they're going to say, no, I found the center of it. It's this. And you're going to say, no, it's this. And in 10 years from now, you might have new wounds in your life. You might have new things that you're going through and you might find a different part of the gospel and it might become the center for you. And so what that means is that the gospel, the many parts of the gospel, all these shards of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, well, when you know the whole of it, when you know all the parts of it, then you can become whole. And that's what we're after in the series. And today we're going to look at a neglected part, a neglected diamond, a diamond that's been thrown in the back of the diamond mine that is very rarely looked at. And it is the diamond of the ascension. The ascension of Christ to his throne. So that's what we're looking at. Let me read to you Acts 1, verses 1 through 12. In the first book, O Theophilus, there needs to be more people named Theophilus. I have dealt, the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. All right, we're going to ask four questions today. First question is, what is the ascension? What is the meaning of the ascension? What's the ascension all about? Now, there, are, there have been times in your life, I'm sure of it, that you've gone through something difficult, maybe even a tragedy. And you felt like this was the worst thing that had ever happened to you. Maybe it was. But on the other side of it, you looked back and you said, you know what? That might have been the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but it could be also one of the best things for me and the thing that I needed the most. That's exactly what happened with the disciples. They saw their king, their resurrected king, gone. Feeling like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Look in, look in the Gospel of John. What you're going to find is these early disciples and these early followers of Jesus. It was a tragedy for them that he left. And Mary, Mary Magdalene, the first to find Jesus risen, she sees him, she embraces him, she's clinging to him tightly. And Jesus says something really weird. He says, don't cling to me because I have to go to the Father. Now, he's let people touch him. After this, we see. So something else is happening. There's something about the way that Mary is clinging to him. She's clinging to him in such a way as to say, this is my risen king. 
and he's here, and I do not want to lose him again. And he says to her, Mary, you got to let me go because I got to go. But I'm leaving because I have something else up my sleeve, something even greater. He's with the disciples earlier in John, and he tells them, look, I'm with you now, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to leave again. And then he says later, but don't lose heart, because it is good for you that I leave. Jesus knows that they're going to feel like he's gone. How can I believe anymore? He's not with me. How can I trust him still? He's not with me. How can I have joy? How can I have peace if he's gone? And Jesus thinks the exact opposite. He thinks that it is better for him to leave. In fact, he thinks by him leaving that he's, his presence here is intensified. The ascension is not the loss of Christ, but the intensification of him. He ascends into heaven and then he sets off a bomb of his presence that comes raining down upon the earth. It sets something new into motion. What is it? Well, it's the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this bomb that goes off. And what's set into motion is the raining down of the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to believe. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot believe. And not just that you can't believe, but all of these promises of God start raining down upon you. And as soon as they hit you, you start becoming alive. God becomes real to you. God becomes someone that you want to be with, you want to spend time with. You are, you are intoxicated by him. You become captivated by him. What I want you to see, everything that Jesus did, his incarnation, Christmas, his death on the cross, Easter, the resurrection, all of that he accomplished means nothing without the ascension. Absolutely nothing. Because what happens with the ascension is all of these promises start raining down on you because the Holy Spirit has come. And then you start singing out like that. But it is true. You believe today because the Holy Spirit has been sent down. You believe today because Jesus has left and ascended to the throne and sent down the Holy Spirit like a thunderbolt to awaken your heart to who he is and what he has done for you. And we're going to start looking at all these promises that comes. So you have to understand, he accomplished something. This Christ event, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, this event of Christ... That's his accomplishing salvation, but now it's got to be applied. And the way it is applied by the Holy Spirit, and that includes promises that are coming to you and have come to you. And we're going to start looking at those promises in two weeks from now, but not yet. I want you to imagine two people who both love each other, but neither have pledged their love to the other. And someone has taken a job on the other side of the world. And neither of them know how they feel about each other. All their friends know it. It's obvious that they should be together. But this guy's taking this job across the, across the world. And then he builds up the courage and he starts writing this letter that he's going to send to her. And he writes it out. And after he writes it, it sits there on his table. He doesn't have the courage to send it yet. Now here's what that means. 
all that's true about him and how he feels about this girl, it's true. But it has yet to be applied to her heart. She doesn't know it. She doesn't feel it. She's not experiencing it. The Holy Spirit is God sending his letter to you to awaken you and make you know in your heart that it is really true. He died for you and all the promises that he has promised to you will happen or have already happened. The spirit of truth, the spirit is called. Awakening you to a truth that you didn't know before. You hoped for it, but now you know it. Now, the question is, what are these promises that get applied? And we're going to cover it in a couple weeks from now. We're going to start, but I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a sneak peek. Here's one. You have been destined by God to be his and for him to be yours. Chosen and chosen as a holy possession, a royal priesthood. Do you know what that means? That each and every single one of you have a very specific calling, a purpose for you to do here on the earth. And he's chosen you for something very specific to do. And you have no idea what it is until the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you in your heart. What's next? What does he want me to do? Generally speaking, you're going to hear today what he wants you to do, but specifically, well, he's got something in store just specifically for you. Holy Spirit makes that clear. Second, here's another little glimmer for you of these promises. Forgiveness. So when you are forgiven, when the Bible says you are forgiven, it means that two things have then been applied to you. First, you see Jesus in two ways. You see him first as the sin stealer. Every single sin in your life, everything that you've done wrong, the whole record of it, he steals those sins away from you, puts them upon himself, goes to the cross, and is punished in your place, crushed for your sins. So that then this record, this guilty record that you have, this shameful record, it's gone. It's burned up. There's no record of it. You're free from it. That's the first. He's the sin stealer. Second, he is the perfection sealer. So all that Jesus did on the earth, he came, he was tempted to, the obedient, to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His record is absolutely flawless. He did everything right, perfectly to a T, and then he takes all of his perfection and he credits it to you. That means all the goodness that he has done, the Father looks down on you, and you are clothed with all of his perfection. So he's the perfection sealer. Here's one last little glimmer. The cross, the cross comes before the resurrection. The cross comes before the resurrection. There's this weird thing that Jesus says a lot. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And do you know what he's getting at? That on the other side of that cross, on the other side of that suffering, on the other side of the pain that you're about to enter into is a resurrection. It's a new life. In fact, if you will be bold enough and face the trials that are before you with confidence in the resurrection, you're going to not run from those trials. You're not going to run from the suffering and the pain. You're going to stare it right in the face. And you're going to look at it 
it's almost like you're going to embrace it, but you're not, but you are. Like you're, you're like, okay, this is through this, I'm going to find something. And there at the bottom, in the pit, you find the Christ, the resurrected Christ. And there, it's only there at the bottom that you meet him. And then, whoosh, like a thunderbolt back up, you become transformed. You experience resurrection because the cross comes before the resurrection. There's a story of the Knights of the Round Table. In one of the versions of this story, they have to find this great boon. They have to find this treasure, something like this. So each one of them, in order to find whatever this treasure is, each one of them goes into their greatest fear, and they face their greatest fear. And the thinking is that it's on the other side of your fear that you find your great treasure. If you will face this world and face what it really is, and the trials and the pain that it will bring you through, then you find the resurrected Christ and he lifts you up. Trials will bring transformation if you go to him. It's a promise. All right, so the ascension means that the Holy Spirit comes down like a thunderbolt, putting belief in your heart and making all of the promises of the gospel alive to you. When God thrills you, when he stuns you, when he captivates you, when he changes you, when he transforms you, it's because the Holy Spirit has done work. When the wound that is greatest to you feels healed by the gospel, the Holy Spirit did it. Second question now. What's he doing up there? So that's what the ascension accomplished. That's what it brought down, the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening here, but what's going on up there now? Jesus is ruling as king. First and second, he's preparing a room for you in his father's house. All right, as king. There's not one square inch of all the earth that he doesn't declare as his own. And that is good news because he is a God who brings about renewal and restoration. And that means one day all of this earth will be fully renewed because it's his and it belongs to him. And he's mad about what's happened to it. And he's coming back to fix it. And it also means as king that there's not one thing that's happening to you that he isn't not just aware of, but he's also in control. And you say, well, oh my gosh, I thought he was a good king. I thought he was good. I thought I could trust him. Yes, you can. Because he's bringing beauty up out of the ashes. That's what he does. He's bringing about resurrection in your life. And so when you're facing something difficult, you get, your life is painted with these trials, with this, these colors of pain, these colors of suffering, these colors of heartbreak. And then he takes those colors and he mixes them up somehow and brings about new colors. And what you find is that he has painted a beautiful painting on the canvas of ashes. Because that's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of king that he is. And if that's true then you can stop stressing out. Did you hear that? You're allowed to not be stressed. You're allowed to not be worried all the time. You're allowed to not have to feel like you have to control everything in your life because you have a king who's way better at being in control because he actually is in control. And the more you fight him, the more he's going to make it so you become so aware of your weakness that finally you go to him for his strength. Stop fighting him. 
it's going to be okay, in other words. All right, second, he's king, but you know what he's doing? He's preparing a room for you in his father's house. Now, as a pastor, what I have found is that something very important for people, whether they want to admit it or not, is they want to belong. There is nothing that says you belong more than being given a room in someone's house. And here you have the God of heaven saying, here's a room for you. And the king is preparing it for you. Now, let me ask you something. Why do you want to be successful? Why do you want people to think that you're beautiful? Well, because you want to belong. You want to feel accepted. You want to feel of worth. You want to feel like someone likes you. Like you belong to something. Why do you want to win at everything that you do? Why do you work so hard? Because you're looking for approval somewhere, and that approval tells you that you belong to something. Why do you want that hug from that one person that just makes everything feel okay? Because you want to belong. I have my 20-year high school reunion coming up. I'm an old man now. And why do we have reunions? Because it's reminding you that you belong to something. That's why there's reunions. The concept of marriage. I belong to you. You belong to me. The concept of the church. This is the family of God. We belong to each other and to God. We hang out with people who are just like us because it helps us feel like we belong. If you don't feel like you belong, you have a really hard time hanging out with people who aren't like you. But if you feel like holy, you belong, body, mind, soul, strength, everything, that you are not your own, but you belong to Christ, well, then nobody can give you any type of belonging that you don't already have. And so you're not chasing belonging anymore. So when someone's different than you, well, you can look at them and you say, I can actually be united to them by Christ. And so you want them to belong to him and then to you. And then it's a together thing, even though they're so different. And that makes life way more exciting, by the way. And that's why the greatest witnesses to Christianity are those who have tasted the sweetness of having a room in their father's house in heaven. There's a room for you. You taste it. You know it. You belong. And then you become this grand witness to Christ. And that brings us to what does he, this king, want from you? Third question. What does the king want from you? Who's made it, he's got a room for you waiting. What does he want from you? Well, in one sense, he wants nothing from you. In one sense, he's accomplished everything for you, and he wants nothing of you or from you. He doesn't need you to glorify him. It's not like he's benefiting from you saying, God, praise you, you're so wonderful, you're so great. You know why? Because the God, is, God is triune, which means the Father, Son, and Spirit are all working to outdo one another and showing the other how great they think that they are. Before God created the earth, he was satisfied, fully belonging, fully being glorified in himself. He didn't create the world so that you would praise him and glorify him and so that then he would feel something he didn't feel before. He created the world out of an overflow of his love and his glory. It spilled over. And so what that means is that one of the greatest proofs that all that Christ has accomplished has been applied to you is that you want to be a witness to his glory. Because here's what happens. When you get filled up with his love, it starts spilling over 
out of you to others, to the world around you. So the Bible, all the way back in the beginning, in Genesis 1, we're told that you are made in the image of God. If you're made in the image of God, you know what that means? It means you're like a living, breathing mirror. Now watch this. What defines a mirror? Whatever stands in front of the mirror is what defines it. So when you think that God is the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, and you look at him as if he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you, as a mirror, do you know what the world sees? God. The greatest thing that's ever happened to you. And so when you become a Christian, as a mirror, if you're really looking at him, the world looks at you and says, wow, God is the greatest thing that's ever happened to him or her. Does the world know that about you? You don't need to be a great preacher. The question is, do people know that you're aware that God loves you and you love him? Start there. But then it tells us in our verses that every single Christian has the power given by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the truth of Christ. Now, let me confess something to you. Here it says that we've been given power by the Holy Spirit, and I want to confess that too often I'm working by my own strength. And do you want to know why? Because I want to belong. This is the tragedy of me right now. I want to feel like I belong, and so I want to prove to the world around me that I'm worthy of something, that I'm successful at something. And so I'd kind of rather God just not do the work and not give me the power so I could show him in the end, God, look what I did. Don't you love me? Don't you approve of me? When in reality, all the approval and love I could ever get is coming from my faith in Christ. And I can't add to that anymore. In fact, by me trying to prove that God should love me, I'm actually in my heart losing that love. It's not that his love has faded. It's that in my heart, I don't feel it. Because I'm not reflecting on his already accomplished love for me. And so, as a pastor, I do a horrible sin and do things instead of for God's glory my own. How tragic is that? But I have a hunch that we're all like that. That in ever whatever it is that we're doing, we want approval so badly. We're desperate for it. We want a bit of glory. We want some success because in the end, we just want to belong. And in that moment, we're not really believing that there's a room for us in our Father's house. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be so aware of my weakness that I have no choice but to say, this was God who did something here in the grove. This was God who brought his kingdom. There's a place in the book of Judges where God's people are about to fight this battle. And instead of there being thousands of people fighting for God's people, God says, just take about 300. And you know why God says that? He says it because if it's not 300 of you, then you're going to say that you accomplished this. And what he wants is the world around him to know and God's people to know that it was God who did that for them, that he fought for them, that he is for them, because we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. We have to learn how to take our desires to belong and finally understand that we do belong so that we will stop trying to steal glory from God because we're stealing the glory because we just want people to love us because if we think that they love us, then we're going to belong to something. And as we're talking about being a witness, there's something else we have to consider. 
when I talk to people who have left the church, very often it's not because of something that they feel about God. It's something that some other Christian has done to them. Some other wound that they had from a Christian. And if we're living, breathing mirrors who are fully aware of the God that we belong to, that he belongs to us, and we're looking at him, then we should reflect that love out. But we're not. I'm reading a book right now, and there's a guy that wrote, a guy that wrote, its name is Oz Guinness, and he says, we have become, talking about Christians, we have become the sharpest rebuttal to our own arguments and the most damning objection to our own faith. The way that Christians treat Christians are barriers to other people coming to faith, which makes us horrible witnesses to the truth, which means if we're being bad witnesses, do you know what that means? We're not looking at God as the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. We're looking at something else, and so we don't feel like we belong. Something I think that's fascinating is that Constantine was a, the Roman emperor who made Christianity legal in Rome. And after Constantine, another emperor came along who was likely raised to be a Christian by his parents, and he hated Christianity. He wanted to restore the paganism of Rome. And so do you know what he did? He didn't feed Christians to lions. That was before him. When that happened, Christianity flourished. In fact, the more the Christians were persecuted, the more Christianity flourished. Do you know what he did? He was a very cunning emperor. It was his greatest attempt, his most successful attempt at destroying Christianity. Though it didn't work, here's what he did. He got Christian leaders together and he said, work out your differences. That was the greatest attempt that was made to destroy Christianity. And it does seem that Christianity often in the church destroys itself from within, not from without. We have to learn to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Too much division. Too much division in the church, which makes us bad witnesses. But if it is true that we belong to him, we can look at others who even think slightly different theologically than us. Hey, we're 99% same, but we're going to be a little bit different. I'm attacking you. No, just, hey, these are your people. Go give them a hug. Then talk about it. Like as you're hugging versus not throwing punches with words. So how do we actually get the desire and strength to be witnesses like this? This is our fourth point. Stephen. Stephen saw something by faith. Stephen is not one of the 12 disciples, but he was a leader of the early church. And he stood declaring the greatness of Christ the king and they began stoning him do you know what that means they take stones and they throw the stones at him until enough stones strike him on the head and kill him well before they killed him he saw something with faith as he looked up to the heavens and do you know what he saw he saw the heavens open up and he saw Christ the king standing not sitting but standing now, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's not only the king, but he's also the high priest. He's also an advocate. He's also a lawyer 
for Stephen. Do you know what's happening? Jesus, in that moment, as Stephen looks up and sees Jesus standing, what that means is Jesus Christ, in that moment, in the throne room of heaven, is saying to his father, there's our guy. That's Stephen. For him, I I came to the earth, I died, and I fought. And I lived for him. He is ours, Father. That room that's at the end of the hallway on the right, that's Stephen's room. He's being an advocate to Stephen, testifying for Stephen. And you know what he's doing right now for you? Standing. He's standing for you, telling his father all that he thinks of you, of his love for you, that it was a joy for him to endure the cross because the cross gave him, gave him you. So he's telling the Father how he feels about you right now. Standing for you. And it's that truth that Stephen saw that made him one of the greatest witnesses in the history of church history. It was an encounter. Not with his eyes, but the eyes of his soul. The Spirit showed Stephen what kind of king Jesus really is. And the Spirit will show you what kind of king Jesus really is. You know what Stephen saw? He saw a king who would come and suffer and die for his enemies. That's what Stephen did. It's what gave Stephen the power to do that. And it's what will give you the power to do the very same thing. And there, Stephen saw the kind of king who would die on the cross for his enemies and say father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing do you know what Stephen cried out as he was being stoned father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing that same power is available to you by the holy spirit the the spirit will show you what kind of king you have the kind of king who will come for you who will fight for you who will go into death for you who will live and conquer death for you and even now in this moment is preparing a room for you at the end of the hallway on the left maybe right next to Stephen that's your room and your name is scratched in by the nails of the cross that's the kind of king that you have let's pray Spirit, we pray that you would give us eyes to see how great our King is, ears to hear of the wonderful news of who he is, what he's done for us, and what it now means. God, awaken us. Make us alive. We don't want to be dull. We don't want to be numb to you anymore. We want to see your greatness. And we want to be people who can't help but respond by lifting up our hands and worshiping you. Show us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.